Welcome to the Kipu Roundtable. KRT is your distributed knowledge network. Roundtable discussions on decentralization, blockchains, and Web 3.0. Hello, everyone. Santiago Velez here. And I'm Malthus John. Hope all is well with you listeners out there. What about you, Santiago? How's life treating you? I'm doing great. I appreciate it. Um, very excited today to bring on these guests as I personally have gone down this rabbit hole of what value is, which seems to be this really abstract concept that has been changing for me uh, as I've gone into this space with blockchain and discovering the kind of nature of money, property, the land, obligations, uh, and how those are different for different societies and how different groups arrive at consensus in their way of valuing those things and how they derive value from those things. I find this super important because as we go into the digital world and we create new rules of consensus that are global, there is going to be another one of these clashes of, of these of these rules and norms. So, yeah, it's going to be a it's going to be a very interesting uh, show with some with some contrasts and some some topics that are are certainly connected, but I don't think a lot of people talk about them. the The idea is that well. The main theme of the show is is about information and, and knowledge storage systems, but as that gets as we take a higher view of of those systems, we find the the similarity with blockchain and and the storage of money, and of course that's being done on these same sort of modern systems now, and there's things that we can learn from what systems were used in the past that that have the most durable and cost effective characteristics. And it's interesting that land turns out to be such a you know an important role to the 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 seeding of these ideas of capital capital formation debt and really land maybe as a as an information system itself as a, as a knowledge system in that it's able to maintain information across time it's it's almost as if it's it's information itself it's like the source of information. The, the interesting parts that we're looking at with Aboriginal knowledge and how they lived with the land. Uh, they didn't they didn't really try to dominate the land. They didn't they didn't remove themselves from the land with layers of abstractions. And they they just were able to pass on knowledge in different forms in a kind of more pure forms like things like song. And and they were able to do that for for thousands of generations, which is an incredibly long amount of time. So yeah, it's going to be a great show. And that's the real layer zero, right? That's kind of uh, where do we get our value as these human beings that need to depend on the land to survive for subsistence and uh, our, our environment itself defines us as, as a species. That uh, is the layer zero that we build everything on top of. And all of these other abstractions, be they legal or computational, are really just ways in which we carefully subdivide things and categorize them and classify them so that we can self-organize and be able to, to your point, either extract value from the land or be a custodian of it so that things can move on into perpetuity. So the idea that these new decentralized ledger technology systems can do that for us 
still need to prove themselves, right? These, like you said, these things have, these layer zero uh, social approaches to land and value have proven themselves for thousands of years. Can these new systems do that moving forward? And so I, I hope our guests can shine a light on that. Okay, well, on that note, let's bring on our guests. With us today is Professor Ethan Miller from the Computer Science and Engineering Department at UC Santa Cruz, and also a former director of the NSF Center for Research in Storage Systems. He'll be providing us with the technical side of archival information storage and bringing the human side of information and knowledge storage systems to the table is Megan Kelleher. She's from the Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology, and she's currently a candidate for a PhD there. Welcome, both of you, and thanks for joining us. Ethan, if you could start us off, give us a little bit about your background, and then, Megan, you do the same. So I'm a professor at the University of California, Santa Cruz. I've been here for about a little over 20 years. I uh, got my PhD at Berkeley back in 1995 and uh, been a professor since then. Uh, I've also been, in, been uh, involved with the storage industry in Silicon Valley, which is only about 35 minutes away from where I, from where I live. But in, in a number of companies, uh, most recently, I've been working with a company called Pure Storage, uh, which does flash-based storage systems. Uh, they started back in 2009. Um, I've been interested in archival storage, by the way, for a very long time, because I view this as a really as really one of society's greatest problems. What do you do with all that data when there's nowhere to put it? And this is a big problem because the typical Silicon Valley horizon for things we care about is a year at most, maybe two to five years. Yeah, archival storage, that doesn't begin to talk about it. If you're not talking about human lifetimes, forget it. And so that's, I think, one of the very interesting problems to look at over time and one that I've been involved with for quite some, quite, you know, for a couple of decades now. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, my name's Megan Kelleher. Um, I'm a Barada and Gapalbara woman. Um, so my people come from the, um, the central Queensland area, um, which is in the northeast of Australia. I'm uh, currently doing my PhD at RMIT University as part of the School of Media and Communication. Um, and I'm looking at the impact of blockchain technology on Indigenous governance and decision-making. And I'm centering the, um, the research on a blockchain mapping application, entertaining the idea at the moment, looking at, at, at potentially at using foam. But yeah, I haven't uh, finalized the, uh, the ethics application that I'm currently in the middle of, of reviewing. So yeah, so I'm about to embark on field work sometime this year. So yeah, thanks for having me. Well, thanks again, both of you for being here. Uh, Professor Miller, can you give us a quick rundown of the sort of the history of information systems like like languages and and bring it up to the the modern time and the specific challenges that we face in the information age? So some of the earliest ones that we know about are based on st you know stone. So for example, you look at cave paintings are information storage. Low density, but it's still information. Uh, so you, you've got, you know, then you've got language evolving. So you've got hieroglyphics, uh, which are, again, information. I mean, that's how we know so much about the uh, ancient Egyptians is they tended to build a lot of carved stone monuments. And well, that's information storage. It has the advantage that carved stone lasts a really long time. Although, as I like to point out in the, uh, the as I point out in the talk, 
uh, it turned out that it is possible to erase data like that. In fact, the pharaohs were known to chisel out names. So if you, if you wanted to make someone you know, disappear, you would actually chisel, chisel their name out of their monuments. And this was done. Uh, but in general, you know, you had a lot of text by some pharaoh. It's kind of hard to make it disappear. I mean, you're in the middle of a desert, so it doesn't disappear by erosion. That's how we know a lot about the Egyptians. And you know, Kipu is another example from you know, from the Peruvian, from the Incas in Peru. You've got you know, you then start to record information on more um, perishable things. I mean, clay tablets in Sumeria. That's pretty. That's pretty non-perishable. But once you start doing papyrus, once you start doing uh, parchment. Those are, are are cheaper, so you actually get more preserved information, but they don't tend to last for 2,000 years, right? I mean, parchment decays. Papyrus, I mean, we are very fortunate in the case of parchment that the Dead Sea Scrolls were sto stored in exactly the right area, so they would last 2,000 years. And even that, it's pretty iffy. But most of the time, parchment's gone in 2,000 years. Papyrus, good luck with that. And you then, you know, so that, and the reason this is important though, is that this is how information got spread out with information on a, an Egyptian tomb or on a monument, you had to go there to see it. Now, of course, you also at this time have a lot of oral preservation. I'm, you know, Megan, I'm, I'm sure you're very familiar with this with, with Aboriginal, uh, Aboriginal traditions and so on. The problem here is the, the, the game of telephone problem. Uh, you guys are, I'm, I'm sure, Megan, I don't know if that's an Australian thing, but Telephone is where you sit in a, yeah, Santiago's laughing, but you sit in a circle, let's say you have a dozen people at a party, you sit in a circle, and each one whispers a phrase to the person next to them. And then you see after 12 people, why, you know, how close to what you whispered in the first one, yeah, Santiago's going to, he knows how this turns out. You get corruption because I whisper one thing and you heard it slightly differently and it keeps going like that. And what comes out is you're going, I didn't say that, I have nothing like that, wait a minute. That's the problem with oral preservation because you have a lot of corruption as time goes on. Even the act of translation causes oral corruption. And the example I used was, and I'll ask you guys, what, what is the sixth command? The one about people being dead, the sixth commandment. Uh, thou shalt not kill. Not quite. That's the thing, Megan, you remembered it as that and you learned it that way. But in the Hebrew, I can read Hebrew well enough to tell you there are two words, one for kill, one for murder. It's not thou shalt not kill, it's thou shalt not murder. Now, this may sound like a subtle difference, except one of them says, don't kill anyone under any conditions. The other one says, well, justified killing is fine, just don't unjustified kill someone. You can see how this would cause a problem, right? That's the kind of thing that with a translation you lose. It's not simply garbled because I didn't hear right, it's garbled because when you translate it, some languages have different words for kill and murder, some may not. Did you translate it right? Um, and, and that's just, you know, without the translation errors, which, by the way, when I did the talk, I showed a picture of Moses with horns. Also a translation error, by the way. But the thing is that that's the kind of thing that happens. And as we start doing electronic preservation, I mean, first you had books, but those would get smudged. Even electronic preservation, we can protect the bits from being garbled. What we can't do is protect the meaning. And what I mean by that is when you store data digitally, you have to have something that interprets it properly. Let me give you a concrete example, PDF, Adobe uh, Acrobat, uh, sorry, Adobe Portable Document Format. That's what PDF stands for. I don't know if you know this, but it is actually a computer language. This is a problem because I have had documents, I've had to review papers that wouldn't open on my computer or would open on my computer, but not on the printer. Yes, I've had papers like that. What happens now when I try to read that paper? What's the right format? 
That depends on me being able to understand it. Never mind that PDF has gone through God knows how many iterations, how many versions do you use? New one or an old one, Mac, PC, Linux. So there's now a PDFA, PDF for archive, but even that one is an interpreted language. How do we do that? How do we interpret it? And you think that's bad, go ahead and try to play an Atari 2600 game. So we can preserve the bits, that's easy. Can we preserve the environment well enough that you could play an Atari 2600 game or some other kind of a game on older hardware? And the answer is maybe not. That's where the problem comes in. We, we understand how to protect bits. We don't understand very well how to protect meaning. And this is the real problem we run into a lot is, hey, here are a bunch of bits and you go, yeah, that's great. How, what do I do with this? I should also mention, then I'll stop, that this is not a new problem. This is actually a problem that is, I do the math here, about 3,500 years old. You look at the island of Crete, we found, uh, two, we found tablets with two different languages on them. They're called Linear A and Linear B. Linear B was very famously decoded in the 1950s by someone who thought, maybe, maybe this is kind of like ancient Greek, and they realized that, well, if I go with town names, they would kind of mark, okay, this town over here, this syllable means this. And they were able to figure out that linear B is actually a written form of ancient Greek. Linear A, still undeciphered. We have no idea what it means because it was probably the Minoan language instead of Greek and nobody speaks Minoan. So we're kind of out of luck because we know it was something, we just don't know what. And there, there are tablets of it, but we can't read them that's going to happen in the future if we're not very careful. Um, the example is, do you know how to decode a GIF? Good, okay, how about how, how about a WordPerfect one document? Can you decode that? I got the bits, but you can't read it because you don't know the format. That's gonna be a very big, a very big issue, as is being able to keep all this stuff for a long time, because it, it's not that expensive until you realize that not that expensive for a megabyte translates to, yeah, it gets pretty expensive for, billions of megabytes across a hundred years, well, okay, that's expensive. <laughs> and that's what we're trying to do now. So any one document isn't expensive, but a lot of them are. Have you ever uh, had any, either had questions or just thought about it yourself about how these distributed ledgers, you know, are going to be affected by this as, as they're becoming viewed, not so much as the, the means of exchange, which could happen on a fast schedule and, and actually be valued more because of that. But now they're kind of leaning more towards the store value, which they, they're really, the, the, you know, the, the fanatics are very diehard about, about talking about that. But I mean, for what, what time frame? For my life, sure. The guy that has Bitcoin right now, sure. But if it's such great amounts of wealth, if these guys really do, if their wildest dreams come true and they become worth hundreds of billions of dollars, how are they going to leave that to their kids? You know, what, how much, how far down the line can this knowledge be transferred? And, and maybe also just specifically about decentralized systems versus, you know, centralized systems, like don't have to visit the pyramid to see the hieroglyphics, but you might be able to, uh, if you've got that same information reproduced in a hundred places, then the chances of it are, right. you know, better. So, yeah. So, so that's a really good question. Um, one of the things about, about Bitcoin and the way the distributed ledgers tend to work is that they allow you to elide uh, older data. If everyone can agree on, the, these ledgers depend on ha on hash functions and hashing, you know, including the hashes of all the previous stuff. Well, you can decide, all right, look, we've got this, you know, uh, a terabyte of old stuff. We don't really want to keep it around. 
we'll keep around maybe one copy. We'll just say right now, this set of bits is the base. And you can move that base forward by saying, okay, now we want to elide the next terabyte of stuff to we're just going to have this as the base. So that you can do. The problem comes in if A, you want to figure out what was in that terabyte of stuff you elided, and B, what happens when there are forks and things like that. In other words, it gets much, it turns out the distributed ledger stuff gets very much less efficient the more transactions per second you try to handle, because really this is what's called single threaded. There can only be one true answer. And if all three of us are trying to see compete so we can mine the next, the, the next, uh, you know, the next Bitcoin, essentially, uh, we all compete on it. I come up with one and, and Megan come up, comes up with one. The question is who accepts, who accepts it more? And there's a lot of waste on this because there's only one true answer and it's whichever one gets adopted by more people. That is literally the true answer. Problem is that as there are more and more transactions, this becomes less and less stable and more and more wasteful. And in fact, it's already the case that energy-wise, Bitcoin mining by its very nature is consuming significant amounts of energy. Can I add something to that? Um, sure, please. So you mentioned the a fork and back in 2017, there was kind of this infamous block wars where there were two competing views that mm -hmm. the community had with regards to the algorithm that underpins Bitcoin. And one of them was the block size, how many transactions you could fit in the memory space of an individual block on the chain. Mm -hmm. And as a result, the, the, the community forked and the code forked. And so the certain people went with hardware that supported the old uh, uh, chain and you know other people went with the new chain. And so we have kind of variants now, right? Right. What, what, what I found interesting about what you said is that these forks, if you think about it as information, distributed information systems, they they represent a fracture in community consensus, right? That we're, right. we're going to agree to run either a new uh, algorithm or a new block size, whatever the rules of the game are, this group of people is going to go over here and that group of people is going to go over there. Uh, but, but some of the people chose a certain block size because they wanted a historical record. In other words, they wanted to say that as the rate of change of the underlying technology is a or, or whatever, um, you'll be able to, any individual will be able to store all of the historical transactions and have this kind of pedigree all the way back to immaculate conception, right? And you'll be able to have this perfect um, historical record of every transaction ever. And for, for whatever reason, that community decided that that was an important property to have. Whereas the other community said, no, what's more important is what MJ related to earlier is this ability to do kind of do more transactions, uh, scale, um, be more common accommodative to like this transfer value function, right? So what are your thoughts on, on that? It's, That's a really good question. So I, I think the answer there though is the community that said, we want you to be able to store all the transactions. The only way to do this is to artificially limit the rate of transactions. And, and here's why I say this. There are about 8 billion people in the world, right? Figure that each person does at least two, three, four transactions a day. Okay, that's 32 billion transactions a day. Yes, I know some people aren't going to do that many, but there are a lot of us who will do a lot more. Okay, so you're talking about 30 billion transactions a day. So over a year, that's on the order of 10 trillion transactions. Now that a, a trillion is Terra. So let's say that each transaction takes only 32 bytes. That's pretty small, but that's still 320 terabytes of data a year. 
uh guess what uh, i'm not store i mean i'm a storage person i have a lot more storage than most people do in their house i have a disc array in the other room i mean it's got you know it, it's only 48 terabytes though it's four 12 terabyte discs so i couldn't store a year's worth and i'm going to guess nobody else here could either so the only way you're going to get to store and that's for just one year the only way and also 32 bytes per transaction which is a very low number it could be a lot higher and that doesn't include internal transactions and all that my point here is the only way, you know, if you think you're going to store all the transactions for all time of all of humanity, you're just kidding yourself. Assuming that you, that you can't do that, there's no way to do that because it grows too big. Now, it's certainly the case that you say, well, we're not going to store all the dollar ones. Well, fine, but you just sort of ruled out 98% of them. Sure, we can store maybe 2%. Even that'll grow too big. Anyone who thinks that an individual can store all the transact, an individual has the resources to store, record, store records of all the transactions of, of the human race is deluding themselves, at least for now. I'm not saying it'll never be possible, but certainly right now, no. So you're right. When you fork off, that's kind of like what happens when a country splits. Right. And when a country splits, so for example, in the Civil War, the uh, the southern states split off from the northern states, and I'm quite sure they got their own currency because people in the north said, well, we don't want to take southern dollars. People in the south like, oh, God, we're not taking it from those northern, those northern idiots. And so they split the currency. And there are CSA dollars out there. They can buy coins like that because there was a split consensus on what constituted money. Happens all the time, right? Um, you have that, by the way, now. Uh, many communities, I think my own home of Santa Cruz is one of them, have this idea of local bucks. So there's this thing of, you know, Santa Cruz bucks where you can buy them and help support local merchants because you can pay local merchants in them and they can exchange them for other things and so on. That's great. It keeps stuff internal. But then, well, how? suppose I say I got too many Santa Cruz dollars. I don't need them for anything. Can I buy, you know, something on Amazon? The answer is no, because we split off for that small part of it. That's great, except that outside the community has a much lower value than dollars would. And that's gonna be true of Bitcoin too, right? You know, I can't plan my, I can't plan anything with a currency that fluctuates like that because, you know, how much is it worth tomorrow? I mean, should I buy a house today or wait till tomorrow? Well, if I wait till tomorrow, my Bitcoin can be worth twice as much. Wow, I could buy a bigger house. Of course, I'm not gonna ever sell it because maybe Bitcoin will be worth half as much and I'll get more money for my house. So you need a stable currency. And unfortunately, Bitcoin and similar currencies and NFTs, by the way, aren't stable. We can record all of it, but uh, you need to have something that regulates it to make it more stable. Well, all four characteristics of money require stability over time. So it is definitely something that has to be paid attention to. And all four of these characteristics interact and are dependent on each other in such a way that they find that sweet spot, that balanced place between efficiency and resiliency. And there's an illusion of persistence in our, in our information systems that gives us a false sense of confidence on whether these things will really store value for long periods of time. And these claims that we make all the time about being able to, these abstractions being able to store value are really predicated on some fundamental technical assumptions that may not be true. And as we approach those limitations, we're assuming that innovation is going to pull us out of the fire, right? We're assuming that as these things grow to a scale that's exponential and beyond our, our control, that someone will come up with technical solutions to 
accommodate us. And that's a pretty big assumption that I think shouldn't be discounted, especially if, if you have a longer horizon than a market cycle, for example. Let's double back to the role that land plays in the stability of civilization and social systems. In preparation for this session, Megan and I spoke at length about this, and one of the things that came up was how an Aboriginal law comes from the land. And of course, when you're talking about stability of civilization, law and order is a critical part of that. Tell us about that, Megan. It, it came off the back of um, a, a really long conversation about, you know, land, this idea of land being the source of the law. The way that we related to land was a very different kind of way of relating to land that, that we see today. We had relational kind of obligations with all entities on the land or, or country, what we, we would call country. The patterns that are inherent in, in land and in all things in nature, it is present everywhere and we are governed by that and everything is governed by that. And everything that we know is in relation to what we know about land and, and country, you know, all across this continent, you know, there were traditional custodians, not owners. And the role of custodianship is a very different way of thinking about our responsibility and obligation to country than thinking about ownership, because ownership kind of turns your mind toward thinking about rights. Whereas if you're thinking about custodianship, then you're thinking more about obligation. What are your responsibilities as a custodian? And if you're thinking about your responsibilities as a custodian for several generations into the future, for all time, that your role as a custodian, you are a conduit of bloodlines, then you take the, you have a very different kind of approach. As a species, we were accustomed, for, I think, for a long time to be unbounded, right? There, there, was no, there was no idea of an end to the land. And so the only real boundary we had was the sustainability of the environment to sustain our, our family and so forth. So we knew that to survive, we had to reach an equilibrium with it and we had to keep it going just, just for the sake of survival. You know, we're, we're going to figure out a more clever way of harnessing this environment and it became more exploitive, more parasitic. So rather than the natural equilibrium that their prior generations had found, they, they said, hey, we can do this more efficiently. We can extract more. We can expand more. We can create weapons to invade uh, adjacent lands. And, and then eventually you get to this point where everybody has done that globally. There's nowhere else to expand. And so now the only way is to essentially try to dominate the land for and, and aggregate, essentially concentrate your civilization as much as you can. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this what I'm, what I'm hearing is that relation to the land and property rights ultimately stems from going from an unbounded to a bounded condition with respect to the resources in your environment. And then when you're in that bounded condition, you, you need then laws to uh, maintain those boundaries in a, in a uh, you know a situation where it doesn't devolve into the violence and, and, and conflict is that a fair characterization of yeah I well I do think that that's correct I do think that that's a fair you know analysis of, of what I was talking about and I think 
we're living in essentially what, um, you know, I'm kind of here, a lot of the stuff that I'm reading at the moment, you know, is, is leading me to this idea of there's an authentic life and there's a counterfeit life. And the counterfeit is reliant on increasing abstraction. And so that's what we're, we're sort of seeing out. We're seeing ourselves now where we are having to maintain the abstraction and the abstraction is costing us this authentic um, existence that we could be, you know, we could be living essentially. And so, you know, the abstractions of government, the abstractions of, you know, the economy. And, and when I say the economy, I mean, it's, that's kind of like a bit of a coverall and, and, you know, cause there are multiple economies within, you know, within economies and I'm not an economist, <laughs> but yeah, I just think that it's, it's really about this idea of abstraction. So I've been reading, I've been reading a Indigenous legal scholar um, by the name of Irene Watson. So she's a, a Nunga Australian, you know, Aboriginal legal scholar. And she wrote a paper back in the 90s um, that, that preceded a book um, that she wrote about international law and Aboriginal sort of sovereignty and, and colonialism. But native title is, well, it's a ruse because it can be extinguished it doesn't really give you access to land. It actually kind of, it's almost like, you know, a way of kind of co-opting the Western construct of land ownership. It's not about custodianship, you know, because, you know, you've sort of then signed this legal document that kind of says, you know, well, now we own this, but it's not operating from that idea that Christine Black sort of promotes through her book that governance, our governance system is informed by our knowledge of land, which is informed by, you know, what we see in terms of the patterns that occur on the land. And, and so then the law comes from, from that. We were talking about a foreclosure defence attorney um, by the name of Kesu Park, who wanted to trace the origins of the practice of foreclosure. And so that innovation of foreclosure can be traced to practices of dispossession of Indigenous tribal lands. And so this was a technology that colonists developed during the earliest days of settlement in America. And so they engaged in, so these colonists who were indebted to their creditors, um, you know, back in, in Europe, they engaged in unscrupulous um, predatory lending to the Indigenous peoples um, who, who were there. And they didn't understand the agreements that they were signing when they were, you know, loaned, you know, might've been mirrors or trinkets, or I don't, I don't know, whatever, whatever sort of, you know, objects of little worth that they were loaned. And so they would, you know, sign these agreements and then the, whichever one um, who was in the, the sort of position of power would foreclose on the loan um, and then they would seize their land. And so that, you know, process kind of, you know, has become, this system of, you know, systematically kind of surveying, you know, the entirety of, of the landmass of, of, of Turtle Island, which is now known as the United States, um, into enclosures or parcels of land. And so that's now become, you know, a global system where all capital can be, so capital in terms of land as capital can be leveraged for debt. And so trading on the debt 
or trading the debt on the enclosure has become the basis of the system of modern finance and capital. And the um, so two thirds of all global capital is land and that's worth around 280 trillion. I absolutely agree with you, Megan, that abstractions kind of separate you more and more from the physical world and the responsibilities, I guess, of custodianship. And what we're seeing in the digital asset space in particular with blockchain technology, et cetera, is we're getting more and more layers of abstractions um, about how we arrive at consensus and, and agree on who is the, who has claim or ownership on things that are basically virtual at this point. And we basically hit the, the limit of our bounded physical world. We talked about that earlier in terms of how we've now divided the earth physically. And now we're in this virtual space where it's kind of a new frontier, it's unbounded. And we're trying to carve out in the digital space, our sense of ownership. Once again, we're repeating the, the, the behavioral patterns uh, it's almost like um, digital colonization where we're staking our claim uh, in the virtual space. And blockchain seems to be the way that it's manifested itself is that we're gonna, we're gonna uh, use these, these uh, layer of the internet that it in itself is an abstraction built on top of power lines and data lines and the societies that maintain that physical infrastructure. So the internet is an abstraction on top of the legal abstractions that make these societies possible. And here we're gonna pile another abstraction on top of that, which is this idea of this distributed consensus. And we're gonna lay a whole new set of property rights. So when, when you hit on that with, with how abstractions kind of separate us from the physical world, I, I couldn't agree more. It seems to be the first time I've heard someone really characterize it that way so, so, so clearly. Um, and you, once you frame it that way, you can see this pattern developing in the digital space. You know, people are laying claim to virtual art, uh, laying claim to like human expression, laying claim to uh, titles of, of land. And it's, and it's at a supra national level. It's starting to transcend even the traditional forms of law and, and claims of, of title. So I'd like to get your thoughts. Is, is that accurate, that extrapolation I'm making? from what you were, what you were saying, is, was that, is that a fair um, framing? Do you mind if I chime in for a minute? Because there is a fundamental difference, I think, between what Megan was talking about and Santiago, what you're talking about. And that is when you talk about ownership of, let's say, physical land, right? That's a physical resource. And it has the very strong physical characteristic that Megan, for example, if you own a piece of land and you decide to build a house on it, a, I can't build a house, I can't do anything else. If you decide to use it as a farm, it's clear who gets the benefit. But Santiago, you were mentioning virtual things, like for example, NFTs. The difference between a non-fungible token that this is the official signed version of that photo, and this is the official, you know, this is the unsigned version of the same photo, they're the same photo, literally the same. I mean, the same exact bits, except for that little added piece that says LeBron James signed this one number one versus the other one, anybody can download that. The reason I mention it is that for every purpose except for value, the unsigned version and the signed version are identical. The set of bits, on the other hand, even if we think this is a valid picture, I can make a copy for literally nothing or next to nothing. I can't make more land and I can't make a physical house or a car or something else. And that fundamentally distinguishes electronic information from just about every form of, I mean, I know you're calling it capital, but every other form of information that we have, information 
is intrinsically valuable, but it's also very easy to copy, whereas physical things aren't. It, it seems to me as um, a type of financial engineering of the same caliber as, you know, this idea of, of taking a loan um, and then somebody's going to foreclose on it. In other words, it's a very sophisticated manner of transferring value ultimately from the physical world where you extract intrinsic value from the land capital um, and bringing it into the virtual world in a fungible way, right? It, it's just another form of very sophisticated financial engineering that says, hey, I'm not saying I'm, people are getting tricked into buying NFTs. What I'm saying is NFTs are an abstraction which compel people to try and find value that's not intrinsic and it's really a transfer mechanism. It's just transfer from, you know, let's say I, I, I'm a farmer. I go work all day in the farm. I produce yield that's intrinsic, uh, food, whatever. And I go sell that. I've made some cash, which is a, a, in itself an abstraction. And then I take that cash and I use it to buy an NFT. Um, and then two weeks later, the NFT is appreciated in value and I sell it to somebody else. What did I really just accomplish there? I just use the financial engineering trick to extract value from someone else that is not intrinsic. It's just a transfer mechanism, I, I feel, at the end of the day, to, to your point, Ethan, about how it's infinitely reproducible as digital bits. I was just going to say, I think, I, you know, the end point, um, you know, in, in terms of what our society kind of deems being as success is that you would take the money that, you know, the money that you've kind of, the increase that you've that you've then created by sort of you know you take your you take your grain, you sell it, you get some cash, you buy an NFT, the thing that you've just sort of described, you know, and and hopefully you're kind of you know well the, the intent would be that you're increasing your you know your capital essentially in terms of you know your wealth, and so then the ultimate would be that you would that you would go back and and you know and buy some land, perhaps, um, you know that that would I mean because you know, there's this old adage about, and, and you mentioned that Ethan, that land is the one thing that you can't make more of. And so, um, you know, land is, is this, um, you know, this practice of acquiring land as capital within the Australian context. Some of the, um, some of Australia's largest pastoral stations, for example, are owned by some of the wealthiest and most powerful families and corporations, you know, even in the world, because they know that land is limitable and, and this is what value really is about. Value is about things that can be owned or the, the colonial way of thinking about land, which is positivist, mechanistic, you know, it's stripped of the sacred. It's, it's a worldview where land is a thing that can be owned. It's disposable, it's priceable, it's limitable. It's an excludable commodity. And so that's what creates the value. And that's what, it, what I think we're seeing kind of occurring in the NFT space is that we're, we've found a mechanism where we are able to limit, we're, we're able to um, exclude this, uh, you know, the production that you've talked about, Ethan, you know, sort of being able to replicate when things are, you know, greatly re replicable in this value system, they're seen as to be losing their value. Whereas it, that's kind of a bit of a flip side. It's a, it's the reverse in indigenous, you know, and in, in, in an indigenous worldview An indigenous worldview, you would value increase. So you would value increasing, you know, the um, virility and the 
the way that um, you know entities can can reproduce. Reproduction is valuable in an indigenous worldview, whereas reproduction is not valuable in you know this worldview that we're or a capitalist worldview. It turns out that reproduction is valuable in the NFT space as well in the following way. Let's look at, for example, and by the way, this this is the NFT space is is not as much different as you think from the art space going back, you know, a hundred plus years. Uh, we actually have a Chagall. I like the artist, and we actually have an original Chagall numbered. Actually, this one happens to be signed. But the point is, he made uh, a few thousand of these prints, and they are worth something. Not worth as much as if he had made twenty prints. The individual print is not worth as much, but the total value of them is in fact larger because he made a thousand prints. And let's face it, the worth of it is not related very much at all to the intrinsic cost of making a print. It's the signature, okay? And so the total value increases as you make more. It's not linear in the sense that as you make more and more, each one is worth less and less because there are more and more of them, but the total value does increase. The same is true of an NFT, right? If I wanna make one NFT worth an awful lot, I make one of them and that's valuable, it's the only one. But on the other hand, if I make 50 of them, the first one's probably the most valuable, then they tail off in value a little bit. But in general, value is whatever, excuse me, someone will pay for something. That's where digital becomes very different because the preservation cost is so incredibly low, right? With land, I mean, I'm not gonna ruin the land. It's worth a lot and it's worth a lot intrinsically, whereas information, the value can go very low or very high as, as we were talking about earlier. So this is gonna feed into things online. I, I will just say one other quick thing and that is money and I think Santiago, you alluded to this, is itself an abstraction. NFTs, I don't think have changed it that much. It's just a new form of currency. I mean, after all, right now, if I wanna buy a house, I put money into a, a bank. Eventually I say, I'd like to buy a house. I take money out of the bank. Well, that's just the same thing as an NFT. That's just a different investment type. Again, that's my own viewpoint. I, you guys may differ on that, but I don't see it as that big of a difference. Mm. I, I think, uh one of the key differences is is who who owns it and are there are there multiple owners are there, is there a chain of ownership because we, really that that process of reproduction of of reproducing some asset some some value uh has been we've been we've been moving in this direction for quite some time before the digital digital age if you take for example you know the art will stay on the art uh, example a recording artist, right? The, the the talent with the singing voice and the and the guitar skills meets up with the person who happens to own the recording studio and the you know the vinyl presses and everything that's you know going back a hundred years or whatever, and and they extrapolated or extracted value from this musician's talent by reproducing it, but at the same time contracting away some of the ownership, right? So so I'm going to take definitely take some take probably the bigger share of this because I'm going to say oh well we've got we've got you know marketing we've got this we've got agents we've got this we've got that we've got stadiums to fill you know all these costs come in and so they're basically making money off of someone who has this individual and unique talent or skill or value one that's not reproducible so much so you know the the idea that someone and then with capital by the way too right that's a someone with a lot of capital, someone with much more capital than the artist was able to take that and leverage that resource 
and this and we could be talking about anything at that point we could be talking about trees or fish or or gold and the and the, the people with the capital to invest in the machinery to make the reproducing or to make the distribution on a, on a larger scale they end up uh, getting some of the value and what we're seeing now on the digital side of things is that you know this this marginal cost of, is is trending to to zero right where now with just the same uh, equipment that we have all sitting in front of us, you know, we can we can largely duplicate these things, and we don't need that middleman with the large bankroll and the millions of dollars of capital to invest in machinery. So, so in that sense, it, it is liberating, I think, to the artist. I think that's one of the reasons why it's going to succeed, even though we've definitely got some chasms to cross with these these ideas that we have carried forward with us. Uh, about ownership rights, you know, non-fungibility, things like that. If you bring back Megan's point about uh, the demon, you know, this idea that you have to monetize everything, um, you, you were just bringing up early example of how it, it can start off as exploitive, that if the capitalist is the one with the resources to facilitate the distribution, that they then have the bargaining power to negotiate the best terms and the artist is not the, the, the full beneficiary of their efforts, right? People are trying to lay claim to that in the same way they lay, lay claim to land. They're trying to extract the properties of human interaction in, in, in entertaining each other, in you know, uh, uh, stimulating each other and laying claim to it in, in terms of I own it and all future residual va value of it will come back to me in some way. You know, that's some of the experimentation people are talking about with NFTs is, you know, the artist, if they sell the NFT in the past, if you sold um, an original art, let's say you sold it for $1,000 and then into the far future, it becomes $50 million. You know, there's this market out there, supply and demand. You've talked about supply. Yeah. It's scarce demand. Somebody's valuing, somebody's willing to pay a certain amount. Uh, but at the end of the day, there's got to be a consensus around who owns it. There are these infrastructures built to make sure that, yes, Ethan, you're the you're the one with the private key, um, and if you want to transfer it to me, we have to, you know, there has to be a transparent way for everyone to recognize that you've done that, and we all agree that that's that's happened. Yeah. And the thing about information, and 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 I think both of you said this is, the marginal cost to make a copy is zero, essentially, which means there's no scarcity or so little that it doesn't matter. So how do you you create a value to something? so that you can actually drive, you know, how do you create a scarcity so that the value can drive up? Because I don't care what the demand is, if everybody can make a copy of, you know, someone's song, that song has zero value in and of itself. We've seen digital assets achieve that, right? I mean, we've seen now a $2 trillion market that spontaneously arose through shared consensus. That is exactly that. It's completely reproducible. I could take a copy of the Bitcoin blockchain and run it on my computer and and but nobody else in the world would recognize that and that's the key right. point is that i can copy something but if everyone else doesn't recognize my copy it doesn't have any value it's only that we all agree to recognize it and that's why bitcoin well, or others have, have some, some value that that's why i think you're going to not you're going to see issues with bitcoin because i mean by the way the same thing is true that you said about bitcoin about the dollar and the euro i mean they, they only have value because enough people believe they have value on the other hand the dollar and the euro are backed by, and this is, goes back to Megan's point, physical assets of some kind, right? 
In other words, you know, if I have a dollar, I can go out and buy anything I want, and the U.S. government is there making sure that the dollar doesn't swing wildly and everything else. Nobody does that for Bitcoin or Dogecoin or any one of a number of, uh, of different, you know, coins that, that are out there. That's the problem. You know, it's it's got value because everyone thinks it does. And if you think that's a good thing, look at what's happening to the values of some of the NFTs. They're going, why the hell is this worth anything? I'm not going to pay. You know, if everyone agrees that that sign thing by LeBron James isn't worth anything, its value crashes tremendously fast, much more so, I think, than the value of artwork by Van Gogh or Chagall or anyone else. Because, well, that artwork, I mean, there's 5,000 of them. We know there can't be any more because the artist's dead. And so there's no reason that those would go down in value. And maybe those sign things by LeBron James won't once he's dead. I was gonna one more quick one too, and then, sure. and then maybe we can we can circle back around. But one of the myths, perhaps, that still lingers on is so, sort of a the maybe it's the corollary to Moore's law. Uh, I noticed you had a paper that you were participating on, uh, economics of long-term storage. And I think that costs might not continue to drop. In other words, this, we, we've sort of been all marching forward with this thing, oh, well, the, the cost for more storage is gonna get cheaper, it's gonna get cheaper, and you might have a different different angle on that. Is it physical limitations that we're hitting or? Pardon? Is well, it physical couple, limitations? There are a couple of limitations, I'll go into them. One of them, so for some kinds of storage, it's physical. Uh, it's already the case for Flash, for example, that flash, an individual flash cell that can hold anywhere from one to four bits today, depending on how you configure it, holds on the order of fewer than 100 electrons. Now, what you can do is make flash cheaper by improving the manufacturing process and saying, oh, well, if we can make these things for less than we do now, the raw materials are not expensive. With things like disk and tape, there's a different problem. Disk is coming up against hard limits where they can overcome them, but it's going to cost a lot of research money and everything else. And one of the questions that's being asked is, is there enough demand for disk to drive the research that will make it possible to do this stuff? But whichever one you look at, we're running up against this problem where uh, if you look at density for disks and, and so on, it has not fallen as fast as you'd like, right? I mean, how long ago could you buy a 12 terabyte disk? They're only up to about 16 to 20 now. It's slowing down. It's slowing down because the companies, and I know this because I've talked to people at the companies, don't have the cash and don't have the, the sort of the reasoning to put in tons of money to make disks denser. And it's going to take a lot to push that over into, okay, now we can sell it cheaply. Back when people were using disks a lot more for primary storage, there was a market. I mean, when you ship you know, 250, 300 million products, you expect to do even more okay, so I'll spend, you know, $4 billion on research at 16 bucks a disc. That's nothing. But as the thing declines, you can't afford to spend that anymore. And that's where the problem is coming in. It, so, this problem, this, isn't this problem true for, I mean, Web 2.0 as classical centralized data centers as it is? I mean, distributed systems compound the problem, but isn't this problem kind of for every, every store, data storage mechanism? Um, it's going to be true for every one of them, yeah, but the, it's more true for disk than almost anybody else because tape's already been dealing with it. Flash, they've got the money. They just were running up against some of the physical limitations, and for them, it's not going to be making the storage denser in the sense of smaller cells. It's going to be making the storage denser in terms of cheaper, more layers, things like that. They're not going to get the cells a lot smaller than they are now. Maybe a little bit, but not a lot. But the real thing that you're trying to do for disk is make it cheaper 
and you can't manufacture a disc much cheaper than you can th th than they are now. I mean, disc prices haven't dropped much. What's what's increased is how much data you put on one disc. But the thing is that, that they're running, I mean, they're really having difficulty spending the money it takes to move them to the next level. And that's where the problem comes in because discs right now, there are lots of interesting issues around them for long-term storage. And one of them is that, as you know, they fail more often than just about any other storage technology. So, so as a society then, do we have to then discriminate uh, the kinds of data that we feel is valuable enough to perpetuate, right? To go into perpetuity, are we gonna have to start making choices about, hey, cat videos may not be what we wanna record for posterity and therefore devote them or how do we go about well, that? So not necessarily because the question really is not, can we afford to store all of it? The answer is we could. The question is for organizations uh, that's that for the large lar large cloud providers that are storing it. In most cases, they are not that th they are storing it for free or or for you know either they're storing it for free because it's Facebook and you don't pay for Facebook. So what's Facebook's revenue model? They sell ads. ads. One of the things we did is he said, look, let's assume that the let's assume that the storage cost is going to keep growing. And here's the problem: they monetize that they, they produce ads that you see when you use the storage, right? Like when you upload new pictures, people see the pictures and they see ads next to the pictures. Great, no problem, right? That's what they monetize. Here's the thing. How often do you look at pictures that are three years old? Not much. And the fact is it costs just as much to store a three-year-old photo as it does to store a brand new one, but the brand new one is bringing in money and the old one isn't. And as the number of years of old ones grows, they're now paying this not for three years, five years, 10 years. They're going to have 20 years of this stuff and they're only monetizing the one at the end. How are they going to pay to store them? They were saved by, it's called Kreider's Law, by the way, uh, just so MJ knows. It's actually called Kreider's Law, which talks about growth of storage, except that's running out of steam. So how are they going to pay for this? If you uploaded all your photos to Flickr and they say, oh, we're shutting down, you're going, but I've got 100 gigs of photos. What do I do now? Uh, <laughs> you're out of luck. That's the point. Flickr said, oh, we'll keep your stuff forever or until we go bankrupt, whichever comes first. Obviously, Flickr will, will shut down. I do not trust storage where I am not explicitly paying up front to store the data. Because if I say no ads and I will pay you what it costs to store, they'll charge me what it costs. What does Facebook do? They're out of luck. Shut down. Hmm. That I mean, so our, our, our collective memory then is, I mean, we, we've been conditioned by the ad model to basically take these things for granted in terms of our mutual collective memory as a society, mm -hmm. right? And as we build this, these social networks where we share with each other and we have all our memories there as repositories, we're really leaning on the ad model to preserve that. And, and I guess what you're suggesting is that that's a, that's a strategic error in the long run as these, as these prices start to rise exponentially, the pressure is going to go on these providers to be to discriminate on our behalf without without our our consent really and it, and it really is on their servers and they're going to start cutting out collective memory and and it's up to us to decide whether it's worth it or not like you do and pay the pay the money to to do the actual storage right that's exactly right and, and it's up to individuals and, and and again it's not that this is a good or a bad thing or a good model or bad model but the free if you watch ads model depends on watching ads or some other way of monetizing and it, it's just not there for archival storage. We don't see enough of it. I'm always trying to uh, to find you know analogies to sort of tie these some of these disparate ideas together. 
it's taken the sacred out of it, really. Uh, if you think about the, the value of those photos or, or anything that we value personally and saying I'll store it for free is, is sort of, it's, it's, changing, it's changing the paradigm so that the, our valuation of it becomes altered and, and actually uh, misconstrued so that we think it's free, but it's not really free. And in a way, that's that's the, that's a similar thing as to looking at the land, the problem with the land or, or other assets, other things that we value and taking the sacred out of it, taking this the, the direct connection out of it, understanding the costs that are involved to make a system sustainable, right, rather mm -hmm. than just profitable, because that's efficiency runs towards the towards profitability rather than and, and then the opposite direction we get if we get uh, resiliency and that's almost always more costly you know we have to have redundancy we have to have things like that so to, well, isn't to, isn't human memory kind of the original storage mechanism i mean you see it's that same demon that that megan was talking about earlier where i commonly see uh you know parents wanting to film their kids baseball game or or music rehearsal um, not actually living in the moment and experiencing what what's going on there and trying to record it for posterity so that it can be stored in some cloud some some for you know 20 years right and and it, it, it's it's odd because it's it's that same disconnect from reality right we, we've disconnected from the land we're not disconnecting from ex from our physical experience and we're, we're what we used to use as memory as a proxy for that is now being kind of digitized and we're trying to figure out how to assign it a value. So I, I oh, go ahead, Megan, you were going to say something, please. Thank you for everything that you've been talking about too earlier. Um, the things that I was hearing in, in what you've been talking about is, you know, several things. One thing in particular is kind of like this universalization almost of, of knowledge, you know, um, that there's a, I think part of the storage issue is about is, you know, there's such a massive data and there's such a massive information. It was really interesting hearing you talking about, you know, the local currency project that you have that, that you know, that's mm -hmm. happening within your sort of local area. And I kind of wonder if, you know, there might be some kind of solution in potentially, you know, looking back to somewhere like, you know, indigenous governance models where so scale wasn't an issue. So indigenous, you know, governance really doesn't scale. You've got very limited localized knowledge groups that usually, you know, they're, um, they're kind of on the basis of tribal groups or familial, familial kind of groups um, that also are, are grounded in a local place. And it's about, you know, sort of the, there's that relationship with the knowledge of place. But I'm not sure if you've heard of Robin Dunbar's, I'm just thinking of the, the, uh, the social brain hypothesis, where there's this idea that, and it's based on studies that, that um, he did looking at primates, so primate societies that, you know, that they work effectively because, you know, there's these implicit social contracts where they have a limit of, some, of somewhere around, you know, 150, um, you know, connections. Yes, yeah. connection. Sorry, within their within their social group, and that also applies to humans, mm -hmm. um, because the uh, the social bonding, the deep social bonding that's required, is actually cognitively expensive, and so the the demands, the the computational demands of of um, sort of managing these relationships and these 
you know, communities is actually what drove neocortical evolution. So, our, you know, the brain size developed um, in response to the complexities of managing these deep social relationships. And that includes things like memory. So in a similar way, you know, the studies that have been done looking at, you know, sort of taking that, you know, looking into primate social groups and uh, applying that in humans, they found that that also applies in, so Dunbar's number, they call it Dunbar's number and it's 150. It's found in, you know, social media groups and, and all through kind of like, you know, human interactions Mm -hmm. and Aboriginal governance systems were also, you know, localized. So there's a, an academic in Australia, uh, her name is Mary Graham. Um, she's an Aboriginal academic and she describes Indigenous governance as a, um, a kind of a multipolarity. So she says that, um, you know, when you look at a, you know, the landmass that's now known as Australia, it, it looked like a country of all local governments that are all autonomous collectives of autonomous beings. And they were also decentralised and distributed in terms of their governance. And that the architecture of, of that society um, starts with that relationship with land. But it sounds to me that, you know, some of the problems that, you know, are currently sort of being, you know, I guess grappled with in terms of information storage comes from trying to contain this vast information sort of, you know, overload, I guess and trying to decide, you know, what kind of knowledge to privilege is, is part of the problem. You know, I guess potentially if we were to sort of say, and I know that there's an issue then of, you know, well, where do you put, um, you know, server farms? You can't, you know, is it, is it practical to have server farms within every 150 numbered local group? But would they be as big? Perhaps, maybe not. Maybe they would be smaller. Maybe they would be more localized. I don't know. I just sort of wonder whether we're trying to eat the elephant instead of sort of kind of get at it by small bites. I wonder. So, so the thing about information storage, the reason why it seems to be such a big problem and why Google has such big server farms is they are serving literally hundreds of millions of people their costs to store, let's say, a terabyte of data is far less than the cost would be if I, you know, for me to store a terabyte of data because they have optimized the heck out of everything. They have one sysadmin for every, I don't know, petabytes of data, okay? They won't tell anyone, obviously. It's that's in a trade secret. But the point is they save money on the people it takes to store the data. And because of the scale, they can actually, they can actually get benefits in other ways as well. I can talk about how that is, but the bottom line is that it is actually cheaper per terabyte to store it in a big server farm than it is for every little community to have their own servers. Now, that doesn't mean that it's cheap. It just means that it's less expensive. With a very large storage system, they can do things for reliability and durability that I can't. Okay, so the notion of having lots of little data centers is actually way less efficient than having several larger ones. It's not that it's expensive, not that we can't do it, but rather are people willing to pay for it? Well, it's not the general theme I'm hearing here, though, to bring this back, because at the beginning of the conversation, we talked about how the relationship of people to the land changed drastically from when it was unbounded and it became bounded. Mm -hmm. What we're seeing is here the relationship to even data storage information on the internet 
we're coming to physical limitations on the storage. We're coming to economic boundaries that we're getting into a, a bounded condition again. And we're gonna we're gonna be creating essentially scarcity in, in whether we like it or not. We're creating a kind of scarcity in the digital space. So even though a picture is infinitely reproducible, there's gonna be a cost associated with that. There's gonna be a cost associated with processing a transaction or taking space on a blockchain in, in, a, in a block. All these costs are gonna create boundary conditions, right? So uh, I, yes and no. I mean, I guess my reaction to that would be that you've got boundary conditions, but the boundary conditions are only, a only an issue at the global sense because there are so many people in the world, right? I take 30, 40, 50 photos a month on my cell phone. I know people who take that in an hour or a day, okay? And by the way, if you made it free, they take video, that much video every day. And so they could use a lot more storage than I could. It's basically unbounded how much they could use. And that's the difference. If it's only $100 a year, maybe that is worth it. But if you say, oh, it's free storage, well, then all of a sudden people aren't going to spend, aren't going to store a terabyte. They're going to store hundreds of terabytes. And now it's not $100 a year anymore. Right now, if you say it's going to expire, right, that's one way of doing it. Facebook says, we will store your video, but it'll go away for a year. You can select, you know, an hour of video a year to keep. Yeah, that's that's like a that's a cognitive event horizon. In other words, we, we're getting to the point where we have so many pictures, videos, content, deciding, first of all, consuming them. Because if you live them the first time, how do you reconsume them? How do you curate them? How do you organize them and prioritize them? Big problem. But I think <laughs> for, for decentralized systems, it, it gets worse, right? Aren't you caching and replicating that problem? However many you, times you you're trying to create- the amount of, data of, of storage for that. And by the way, you didn't necessarily live it the first time. Remember I said that I sent that, that we sometimes send my parents pictures or videos. They didn't live it. I mean, I was at my kid's event, but they weren't, uh, you know? And so from their point of view, and, and again, this goes to the, the point that Megan made about 150 people. It's certainly true that most people today don't have more than a circle that size. But the thing is that everybody has a different circle. That's the problem. So if you had, so to Megan's point, if you had a, a group of 150 people and they were restricted by physical requirements to be in the same general area, because 10,000 years ago or more, uh, yeah, it's not like you had friends, that, Aboriginals didn't have friends that were a thousand miles away because they would never see them, right? So they were all in generally the same area and the land was effectively tied to that anyway. It wouldn't have made sense to say, oh, but it belongs to people a thousand miles away. But now that we can transfer information very easily, very inexpensively, as we are now, this becomes a bigger problem because now you can't just say, well, this 150 people is one group and this is another group. It's overlapping groups of 150 people. And we all have this, right? All of us are parts of different circles and, and you know, some are more shared than others, but that's where the problem comes in and why having a central storage thing helps. One other quick thing about why having a centralized storage facility helps. There is a process called deduplication. I don't know if have you guys heard of, that, of this or not. Megan, I can explain so. it very simply. The yeah. idea is that if, that if, let's say that I send a picture to Santiago, right? And he says, I really like this picture. I want to keep it. And I say, well, I'm keeping it too. It's my picture. We both store it at Google. Google has, there, there are techniques by which Google can say, look, you both stored the same bits. It'd be silly of me to keep two copies. Well, I'll just keep one copy and say one belongs to Santiago, one belongs to Ethan, and we're done. That's something you can do much more easily with a centralized server. Because if I have a copy of it and Santiago has one, I don't know that he kept his copy on a separate server. He doesn't know I have mine. We have to both keep a copy. 
But if Google centrally is storing it, guess what? Google says, hey, it's no big deal. We can store this. But we only store one copy and say Santiago's and mine. And then if we want to send a copy to Megan, we just ship her a copy. And really, Google says, okay, there's a third person on it. No big deal. That can save a lot of space. And there are all kinds of other techniques that, that can be used. But I think the bottom line here is, and you mentioned, you know, the human brain and how it works. In most people, the way we store information is we forget. Yeah. Ask someone what they had for lunch three weeks ago. We forget things that don't matter. And our brains have whatever idea it is of what that is. Computers haven't got a freaking clue. They have no idea what's important. Well, the, uh, the, the Aboriginal systems survived for what, Megan, like 40,000 at least years? Between 40 and 60, some, some estimates are up to, you know, 70,000 years. And, and without, without a written language, right? Mostly spoken oral traditions, things like that. And maybe some were... symbolic. Yeah. Right. So there were other systems in addition to, you know, oral communication you know, weaving is one of them. Um, it might've been, you know, using, you know, beading shells on strings or, you know, Ethan mentioned, you know, much earlier in the conversation about, you know, like rock paintings or using um, carvings on, you know, wooden artifact. So there were other mechanisms, you know, things like dance, um, you know, they were uh, methods of, of conveying um, information and remembering information and also um, song. So, you know, so there were uh, kind of like mnemonic um, devices of, of ways of, of remembering information um, and also things like, you know, stars, you know, direction. And I'm, I'm, this is not, this is not my field of expertise. So I'm kind of, you know, drawing on, you know, things that I, I, I kind of know you know, on a, on a surface level, but yeah, you know, like uh, journey maps and wayfinding and, and things like that, you know, were based on, you know, remembering where to go. And, you know, when you mentioned earlier, Ethan, that, you know, that there weren't relationships across thousands of, you know, kilometers. Well, there were, you know, there's um, archeological evidence of, you know, you might have inland communities where their, their diet is primarily fish um, and that, that those fish were, you know, caught using nets that were woven with plants that were grown from inland. So that kind of suggests, you know, codependent sort of relationships that, you know, were over thousands of kilometres apart. Um, and these, you know, these kind of relationships occurred because the limits of your, um, you know, your local sort of area it didn't mean that you never went out of outside of that area. It just meant that, you know, that you were more able to trust, you know, the, the, the relationships within, um, you know, that kind of the social brain, if you, if you kind of, you know, refer to that hypothesis, you know, there was a, it was easier to trust those relationships within, within that limit, but kinship systems, also meant that you were able to have relationships that did go outside of those those small areas and so then you would have you know so it might have been say for example you know you married outside of your you know you didn't marry within your own tribe you would you know you know you might marry from someone from thousands of kilometers away and so then there is a there is a relationship there's a kinship relationship there 
and the information that's required to kind of travel between, you know, very long distances, you had to remember that information and pass that information on. And that, you know, the, the way of kind of remembering that was done through song and through, uh, you know, like I'm saying, you know, things like star mapping, um, even remembering the movement of the stars and knowing that those cycles happened over, you know, hundreds and you know some i mean how how long might it take for a certain star system to kind of come back into our our skies um you know sort of like a, a constellation for example you know so to be able to kind of convey that information and to and to sort of to have that um, intergenerational knowledge relied on systems of communication and i guess information storage that wasn't always written down and this is where um you know songs that were you know cultural songs they were handed down because it meant it, it gave us the information that we needed to be able to you know continue living in in harmony with our you know with our environment so songs seem like a, a pretty good encoding algorithm you know with the, yeah, the, the way that, that noise and intonation and things like that really good for encoding the data and at least preserving it to Ethan's point about that degradation of the, of the data with song, you can, you can do a pretty good job if you know well, the lyrics. <laughs> well, it's, it's the lyrics that are the tough part. And what, what I was going to say, by the way, and Megan's absolutely right. I, I did not mean to imply that there was no interaction with other communities, but the bandwidth using a computer term was very limited because if you want to go a thousand kilometers and you can go 30 kilometers a day, and that's pretty impressive. That's a month's journey. And if you want a round trip, that's two months. Well, you can't, and it certainly wasn't done by the entire the entire group of 150. It was one, two, three people who would do this. And so you had information going back and forth, but it was very limited amounts. I think the, the issue now is the volume of information we have is much greater and we, we demand higher fidelity. And what I mean by that is, I have, photo, I have a photo on LinkedIn. You guys probably all have one too. Guess what? Anybody can look at that and see what we look like. That in terms of a volume of information for that 150 people, the human brain is a relatively imperfect memory device and it forgets things, it gets details wrong. Uh, you should read all the stuff that, that, that about uh, details of crime scenes or accident scenes, right? And so that's, I think, one way to think about it is the demand for storage is high. And part of that, I, I mean, part of the side effect of this, and this has actually been shown to be true, is that we are losing our ability to remember things as well as some of these more, you know, some of these older, more human memory oriented cultures do. Uh, I can tell you, I'm Jewish, and I can tell you that it used to be that the, the Torah, the five books of Moses were oral, they were not written down. And that's why you chant them, because there were people whose job it was to memorize the whole darn thing. That's how effective this idea of yeah. singing actually is. Mm -hmm. But the point is, well, if I were to try to memorize, remember, this is a tiny fraction of the whole thing. If I were to memorize that, I wouldn't have room for all the other stuff. And that's why I'm saying that if you want to remember all this stuff, you put you, you put it down on something, paper, rock, computer, whatever it is. And the problem now is, do we want to spend the effort and time to filter it out, which our brains did for us for free, right? That's really what it amounts to. So uh, does our society then, is it assigning a premium to storage because the complexity of our economic transactions and the structures we built 
require the kind of recording of certain types of information. So we have to, so, so in other words, um, it was essential for the Aborigine to know the constellation so they could guide themselves right. at night or to know this path that isn't, doesn't have predators or whatever particular characteristics to ensure survival and success of the mission. It seems like as our society gets more and more complex and we need to ensure the success of whatever enterprise we're, we're getting into, we're assigning a premium on the accuracy and the bandwidth of the data. This goes to a, a change in the way people did things. If you look at an Aboriginal society, there weren't a lot of things that people owned, right? And, and by owned, I don't mean that it belonged to an individual. I mean, you know, how many physical things did a group of 150 Aboriginals have? I mean, they had nets, for example, and those were prized because that, that was hard to get the fibers, as you point out. There are other things that they had, but it wasn't very many, okay? And, and this notion of we have things and we don't want to throw them out. If I have a picture, maybe I'll need it again. And by the way, that's probably ingrown. I mean, you know, I don't think an Aboriginal tribe would have thrown out nets because they say, oh, well, but we can repair it. We can fix that little part. We can fix, they wouldn't have thrown it out because it was so scarce. Now we're in, an, in, in, in the same way that we are in a society where food is plentiful and that leads to things like obesity. Information is even more plentiful. And so maybe what, what's happening is we have the, the digital equivalent of being obese. We have all this information. We just never want to throw it out. Any one of them, it takes too long for me to decide. It's worth it to say, ah, screw it, just store it. Who cares? In the bulk, that creates a problem. Is that because the costs are externalized? In other words, they're not tr immediately transparent to you? So in other words, because they're on a cloud and they're expressed through ad, is, is it just because you're not seeing the cost? No, it's because the cost itself is so low. Is it really worth your time? Is it really worth your time for most people to go back and delete them? And now realize that multiply that by all the photos you took and you go, yeah, it's not worth a penny for me to decide which of these photos to keep and which not, but the pennies add up. Yeah, I certainly don't have time to go and delete. You know, I, I don't even have time to kind of go back through all of my photographs and kind of curate and prune out yeah. the ones that I don't want. I just don't have time. It's a it's a massive project that um, mm -hmm. that I actually kind of, get anxious about to be honest what yeah. i wanted to say uh, earlier was was basically that there's there's some ideas about how our language itself gets in our in the way of our being right and i think when you extrapolate language and disinformation that we're, we're really talking about the same thing and, and when you go backwards and you say well how did, how did these cultures survive for forty thousand years with the same information is because they didn't have tons of it they weren't they, they weren't dragging you know cuneiforms around with them and things like that it was because they, they were able to sing their their information and when when you have that kind of system you only keep the important stuff right that that filtering process is ongoing all the time live real time it's not uh i'll delete this photo later or whatever you know yeah there's 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 definitely a an interesting antithesis to what we've been talking about that the simplicity of not having all the extra information is is sort of a maybe one of the keys to happiness okay wrapping it up if you'd like to get in contact with our guests you can do so at the following websites professor ethan miller can be found at soe.ucsc.edu in the Computer Science and Engineering Department, and Megan Kelleher can be found at rmit.edu.au 
in both the Digital Ethnography Research Center and the Center for Automated Decision Making and Society. And those links will be included in the supplementary information for this episode on our website at kipu-roundtable.net. And also you can find us on Medium, Twitter, and anchor.fm. It was it was great to have both of you on the show, and this it turned out to be a, a really a really great conversation that was unbounded, and it was really great to see that you just both jumped right in, and and um, and your interests were overlapped sufficiently to to all of ours, and uh, it was a really great conversation. Yeah, and I'll echo what MJ said. I mean, I'm I'm super grateful. I feel like this was a master class with with two masters in their respective domains. So I can't I I, pre, I appreciate it so much. I learned a lot. I plan on listening to this uh, roundtable afterwards several times. Try to pick up the, the little details. So thank you, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and I, I definitely will not proclaim to being a master of um, of my field um, by a long shot. I'm really on the beginning of this journey, and it's um it's really exciting. And hopefully one day, you know, Ethan, I might be looking back on you know 20 years of work post doctorate, and maybe we'll be looking back at the, listening back to this this podcast, depending on how how it was. You know, we found ways to store it and interpret it, and kind of you know bring it back to life. Thank you very much for having me. This is very interesting, and uh, I appreciate the good discussion and interesting back and forth with, with people with a wide range of interests and backgrounds, and that I think was really helpful. And, I, and again, I learned a lot also. I think the, uh, I definitely appreciated the different viewpoints and seeing things from uh, different points of view about information and, and how information relates to capital and, and, and sort of cost and value and so on. I thought that was wonderful. So I, again, thank you very much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. All right, Santiago, let's let's do our debriefing. There's a lot to digest in this session, and we touched on some complex topics that need to be explored further. There's a huge difference between our ancient models and social systems and and the modern ones, and our move or our evolution from a nomadic species to an agrarian one was that was a big shift in how we lived with the land how we valued land and and other things but i do i I think it was necessary i think that that was part of our learning procedure you know part of the the path that we had to take to get where we are just as i think that where we are now we we have to you know, continue to evolve and bring back some some deeper essence of living in a decentralized way, but not, you know, this doesn't mean that it's a return to the past. You know, the genie's out of the bottle. We, we can't go back in time like that. But what we can do is to expand into this these new digital dimensions that that we've created online and in in code in fact i've i've seen the phrase used in some some groups online uh, calling themselves digital nomads you know and that's kind of kind of what i'm hinting at there is that uh not to say that you have to be moving all the time but that you 
you could stay in one physical location, but you can move in other ways and other dimensions based on your interests, based on things that you value. You can associate with and become a member of different communities that aren't necessarily in the same geographical place that you are. And I, I do think that for most of history, we couldn't see and, and couldn't have foreseen the future problems that, that we were going to basically bring upon ourselves by marching forward. Uh, but, you know, the models, the models that we've been using for a long time, for many, many generations, have been just go forward. You know, built into the model is this ever-growing inputs, rather than recycling some of the stuff that's behind us that we're trail, you know, blazing through and just throwing behind us. We needed to learn to recycle that stuff, including land value and the life cycle of people and generations, because otherwise it just it just tends to conglomerate. It it condenses down. We see inequality increasing. You know, that's one of my concerns actually in the blockchain space, in the cryptocurrency or virtual asset space, is that we're going to tend to repeat a lot of the mistakes of the past. Because if we don't look backwards and see where did we make these errors we're bound to repeat them because the behaviors are the same. The incentive structures being built are the same, which is to acquire and extract value from systems rather than uh, being custodians of it. And so we see now this mad land rush in the virtual space. People are aggregating and hoarding digital assets, virtual assets, NFTs, uh, claims on things in the real world, but abstracted in, in the virtual it's the same behavior only now there's a technological abstraction that's facilitating it. And my concern is that we're going to repeat a lot of these mistakes and it's not a physical violence by all means, it's superior to that, but it is a type of violence in the sense that uh, it, it can be a zero sum game. And if we don't look at these frameworks as ways of kind of building a better, more equitable system for everybody, we're just going to repeat the same inequities of the past. One of the other pieces that I thought was, very nuanced that I think the audience should appreciate is that not all bits, not all information is equal in terms of mm. this long-term sustainability. And that we currently, in many of these systems, the newer ones don't discriminate the value of one bit from another. And therefore think that 100% duplication is the solution to the problem of creating long-term stores of value, when in reality, we see based on our ancestry that it wasn't the quantity of information, it was the quality. And even information systems like Song that disseminate information over spans of eons uh, didn't concentrate all of their efforts in making it a perfect replication it was more about communicating the important aspects of, of, of that needed to be communicated. So that to me was a, a, an insight that I was that I thought was special because in the digital world today, it's all about being able to reproduce down to the last seventh decimal place and being provable. And is that really where the value resides? I, I'm not so sure. Yeah, and, and that's actually the way I summarize the transition from the industrial age to the information age the roots of that start at the uh, you know the, the dawn of the 20th century 
with our mastering of electromagnetic waves and it didn't it didn't take long for the main thrust of everyone's focus to be on information and communication quantity you know the information theories of that era were all about you know getting it across getting more data across fighting noise you know clarity of signal things like that and whereas now basically you know that need has completely changed and we have such abundance of information now that our focus must be on the quality of the information and we hadn't even really fully grasped what that what that means to have uh, quality information part of the reason was because prior to this this era the modern era it was it was possible for someone to to be educated in basically all the areas of life and the the exponential growth in our human knowledge has has changed that to such a degree that now it's even even for a specialist in one field it's impossible to keep up unless that's all you do with with the the latest information in your field and so you know not only taking efforts to to reduce you know misinformation disinformation fake news all those kind of things but just the curation and the the maintenance and the dissemination to other people who need it and finding out who needs it those are the big issues and challenges that we face as a species as we move further into the information age Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the program. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. And if you liked it, give us a positive rating. Find all our links, articles, and episodes at kipu-roundtable.net. K-H-I-P-U-roundtable.net. Thank you.